WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQNA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking with writer Mark Russell, fresh from Comic-Con at the time we recorded this, to talk about his many, many projects, including Second Coming, out next year from Vertigo, Green Lantern Huckleberry Hound, out in October from DC, Lone Ranger from Dynamite, Judge Dredd from IDW, and, most timely, uh, Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles, one of the best books of this year. Uh, It's coming out in trade this week, August 22nd. Uh, We also talk about his trip to Comic-Con, whether theology is an attractive career option, and our shared childhood practice of reading the encyclopedia for fun. Uh, Big hearty thanks to the Cape May County Library who invited me to participate in their fourth annual CapeCon this past Saturday. Uh, I had a great time facilitating spirited fandom debates among their teen volunteers and helping judge their cosplay parade. And my son had a great time too with all the crafts and there was a Mario Kart tournament. Uh, It's definitely given me the bug to get more involved in my local con scene here in southern New Jersey. So if you or someone you know is organizing a show and you need a panel host or something, email me. Meanwhile, what's going on over at WMQComics.com? Matt Lazowitz just debuted a new feature where we get to know some of your favorite comics podcasters via Q&A. And we started with Hub from Tighten Up the Defense, a fun podcast that looks at old issues of the new Teen Titans and the Defenders. Uh, Matt also gave us some bonus reading on Mr. Freeze, one of which was an episode of Batman the Animated Series. Uh, We put out our list of the top 11 X-Men writers of all time, uh, with hopes of following up with the top 11 artists, and Joshua Bermont gave us his review of Pearl Number 1 by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos. So, as always, tons of content, tons of fun uh, at WOQComics.com. Now here's me and Mark. Uh, well, I guess to start, uh, how, was your, how was your San Diego? It was uh, hectic and, uh, and haunting. It was just like nonstop uh, human interaction, but I had a really good time. And uh, yeah, but I was just a little overwhelmed with the whole thing. Um, were you before you started writing comics? Were you you know were you a convention guy? Were you going as a fan at all? No, uh, I didn't uh, go first uh, convention until 2013 when I published a book with Top Shelf called mm-hmm. "God Is Disappointed in You," mm-hmm. and I've been to I think pretty much every single one since. But yeah, I, I love the experience. But uh, but yeah, it's 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 not something I was born to do. <laughs> um, are you finding that like as you go, kind of each subsequent year over the past past five years, and, and you're getting you know kind of more name recognition, is it becoming sort of more of like an intense whirlwind experience? Yeah, I have more to do. I mean, the first time I, I was just kind of there signing books periodically and I was and then just sort of wandering around enjoying the con getting to know people now it's like I've, I've, I've got a lot of panels I got to go to the media interviews and mm-hmm. uh, and then there's things going on after the con that I have to go to but I mean in a way it's it makes it more fun because I'm not the I'm not the new kid at school anymore I, I know people there and, uh, and, and it makes it a lot more interesting. Cause I, uh, one of the things I look forward to going to the con every year is basically just seeing friends, seeing people I only ever see at the cons. Mm-hmm. And to me, that increasingly that's what the con means to me. Just seeing people I haven't seen in a while. Um, what was sort of, you know, you mentioned doing a lot of, of you know, kind of press events and panels, obviously uh, is what question would you say you were getting sort of more so than uh, others? 
Yeah, I got a lot of questions about the uh, the Flintstones Eisner nominations, obviously, because the, yes. the Eisner Awards are at at San Diego, so everyone wanted to know about that. And then, of course, the second the runner up was the new Vertigo series, uh, Second Coming, because it just sounds like such a bad idea. The, the the premise just sounds so awful that everyone's got to ask about it. And I think the questions, in 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 case I don't know if you've heard about this, but uh, the the premise is basically a superhero. Um, uh, my called Sun Man mm-hmm. sharing a two bedroom apartment with Jesus Christ, and I think most of the questions I got about that kind of boiled down to, are are you sure you want to do this, or is, or what were you thinking? You know, questions of those that effect. Uh, that's you know that's funny uh, to me. You know, personally, having you know looked at the initial batch of, of you know Vertigo announcements, I think Second Coming was the one I was most excited for. Uh, you know, especially coming off of, of Snagglepuss, but I wanted to ask kind of in relation to that, you know, this follows obviously God is disappointed in you and Apocrypha now, uh, you know, in which you I- interpret the Bible. Now you're writing this story in which Jesus is one of the main leads. Um, would you be a theologian if it were a profitable career? No, I'd, I prefer much more being sort of an armchair theologian, uh, being somebody who talks about religion and philosophy and, and things like that from the safety of comic books than being someone who has to like uh do it in academia where it's boring fair enough uh how was it how was the initial process uh you know going back to god is disappointed in you how was the process of, of shopping that around how you know what kind of reactions were you getting to it uh from publishers it, before you landed at top shelf it was it was pretty easy because uh, I didn't really know anybody and I didn't really know what I was doing. So uh, Top Shelf approached us pretty early in the game. Uh, basically, the way we shopped it was we just created like a little zine with a few with a sample, about 20 pages of the book, and just kind of gave it to people. And Shannon Wheeler, my collaborator, uh, who's been doing this since the 90s, uh, knew a lot more people than I did. So he got into a lot more hands, and one of those happened to be Chris Staros, who was the, the owner-publisher of, uh, of Top Shelf at the time. And he sent, sent us a nice email asking if, uh, we would publish, if, he, if we would publish the book with him. And uh, I really wanted to get it right, because I didn't know if I'd ever write another book again. I thought this might be it for me. So I looked at some of their other stuff, and um, they'd published another book I really liked. Uh, about vice presidents called Veep, which was sort of like a comic uh, prose book hybrid. That's really what convinced me that, yeah, Top Shelf would do a really good job with this book. So, you know, then we went with them. Oh, that's awesome. Um, one of the other books that you've got coming out uh, in October, uh, you're, the, uh, you're, you've got a standalone in the line of DC Hanna-Barbera team-ups uh, starring Green Lantern and Huckleberry Hound. Uh, having, having read Snagglepuss, uh, I wanted to ask if this is percent, perchance the same Huck that we saw at the end of Snagglepuss Chronicles. Uh, yes, it is. It is the Huck that you are, it's Huckleberry Hound's son who we are introduced to the last issue of, uh, of the Snagglepuss Chronicles. Uh, basically 12 years later, He's had a successful career in cartoons, which has kind of fizzled out. And now he's left having to, uh, you know, do what he calls the has-been circuit. He is uh, signing copies of his comics at Comic-Con. He is uh, appearing on Hollywood Squares, which for legal reasons, I couldn't call it Hollywood Squares. So I had to refer to it as, as 
Hollywood rhombuses. <laughs> yeah, that's how he makes his living now. So it's kind of, in a way, it's about two guys meeting at the opposite spectrum of their career. Uh, John Stewart is just becoming a Green Lantern. He's still in training. And Huckleberry Hound is at the, the tail end of his career in show business. And it's them sort of like talking about life and, and, and the world uh, on the, seemingly on the verge of tearing itself apart in 1972. Uh, because it's set in the 70s, do we get any sort of like nods to the, you know, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, hard traveling hero stuff? No, not really. Um, I, uh, I I don't think I'm, I know enough of what I'm doing to really give that many nods. I just kind of like have to write what seems to make sense to me and, and, and hope it works out for the reader. Sure, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite jokes in, in the Snagglepuss miniseries uh, is that you named the morality crusader uh, antagonist Gigi Allen. And I'm kicking myself because I, I probably read the first issue like three or four times before it finally clicked in my head that, oh, wait, yeah, that's the punk rock singer who ate shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, was, was that a joke? I, I just thought it would be yeah. really no, sorry, go ahead. to have like a morality crusader named Gigi Allen and at one point. Uh, you know, when they're introducing her, they say a name synonymous with morality and good taste, Gigi Allen. Um, was that was that a joke you were expecting people to get right away, or was that like an intentional slow burn? You know, I, you know, I, I was kind of hoping it would be a slow burn. I was kind of hoping there were people who would get it right away, and then other people would be like, "Huh, okay." And then, like they'd, later, at some point in their lives, they would be reading something about the the the, the punk rocks guy gg allen and you know eating shit or you know walking around naked on stage and the the light bulb would click on over their head like wait a minute isn't that the name of that character and snagglebus um so i'm glad i'm glad to hear that i'm getting both um when you were writing that book and you know obviously way heavier than the source material did you ever get to a point in writing and, and you know it doesn't have to necessarily be with snagglepost but with any book but where you kind of have to walk away for from it you know when you're writing a bit that gets real uh you know heavy or emotional like i'm thinking for example the stonewall raid you know when quick draw punches huck in the face yeah there's moments where you just kind of hate yourself for having to write it but at the same time you're not taking you don't feel like you're not taking it seriously if you don't do the horrible things to your characters that the story demands. So it, it is, you do kind of have to like, there's, there's certain uh, parts of that and of, of the Flintstones. I just, I just can't really read because I, I hate what I had to do to the characters, but at the same time, it's, it's what the gravity of the story demanded. Um, what, what is it about, you know, characters like, you know, Snagglepuss, the Flintstones, you know, the kind of old Saturday morning bunch that makes them such ripe targets for, for social commentary. Well, I think that in a lot of ways, they both sort of populate these rich premises, like Bedrock obviously being the world's first civilization. is kind of a good opportunity to talk about civilization and what it got wrong and, you know, how we could improve it. And uh, Snagglepuss, too, is like, you know, I basically knew two things about Snagglepuss going in. I knew that he was uh, a gay icon, and I knew that he, his catchphrases all were sort of theater phrases, like <laughs> Heavens to Murgatroyd and Exit Stage Left are both sort of references to, to theater. So he obviously has a background in theater. So then in the, that, that kind of germinated the, uh, the story in my, my mind, like what would it be like to be 
a closeted gay man in the 1950s working in theater, uh, having to create while you're so, you know, and tell really authentic, uh, from the heart stories while yourself having to be in the closet and hidden from, from view. And, and what, how does that sort of enforced self-loathing creep into your art and into your life? And really, I just started with those two basic premises that are inherent in the character. And from there, the whole story just sort of evolved. One of the books you have coming up is uh, Lone Ranger from, from Dynamite. Uh, obviously, the last iteration of the Lone Ranger, the, uh, the movie, uh, took a lot of flack. Uh, you know, where do you see yourself kind of working with this franchise and, and, and taking it forward? Well, I, I don't know if I call it a formula, but w what I do is, is more or less what I just described. I just think about where it's set and the characters and, and what the world really would have been like for him. So I kind of set it in the Texas Panhandle in 1883. Uh, barbed wire has just been invented, and it's just it's completely changing the way of life for people on the prairie. Uh, people, and this is always something that's kind of fascinating me how like little things can have enormous impacts on, on civilization and how people live. But barbed wire allowed large scale ranches to be feasible as opposed to just having like herds of cattle, just wandering the, the, the plains, you know, driven by cowboys freely, which is what we think about when we think of like, you know, Texas and cowboys, we think of, this is what we think. We don't think about these giant sort of pseudo industrial ranches, we think of like cowboys in the open sky, the plains, like riding horses, lassoing uh, cattle. But all of that really started coming to an end in the 1880s when they when they invented barbed wire. So I wanted it to be sort of like a metaphor for what happened to the West, how the West went from being this sort of free, wide open place where Native Americans and <clears throat> and white people can sort of interact freely and just sort of like wander from place to place to just being this a settled civilization that had no really room for anybody who couldn't work within the uh, the framework of these large scale financial enterprises. Um, do you, do you give yourself a lot of time, uh, lead time for like historical research when when it comes to books like this? I tend to kind of go with things that I already am sort of interested in. So luckily, you know, I will have done some of the research already. But yeah, I do. I do more research on top of that just to make sure that what I'm writing about fits or to see if there's anything interesting about the historical period that I'm overlooking that I want to work into the uh, series. Uh, so, yeah, there's always some some um, research that goes into to writing these even when after I, I know that I want to write about that time and place. Um but I try to write, you know, my, my, what I like to do is draw what I'm thinking or things that I know about the outside world into comics, as opposed to just writing comics as homages to other comics mm -hmm. that I've read. Uh, and, and in a way, that's kind of my, the advantage of being somebody who's somewhat new to comics, is I don't have a lot of this, this huge well of knowledge about other comics to draw upon. So I have to draw upon real life or history or philosophy. And in a way, I think it, that that's kind of what makes my comics more interesting than they would be if uh, if, I, if I was just somebody who'd grown up with comics and just read them all the time. Um, how far back does your familiarity with the medium go? Does it start with with Prez, or you know, had you you know had you been reading at any point in your life prior to that? I was a casual reader before that. Um, I read a lot more now. Obviously, I've read a lot of comics in the last 
four or five years. Uh, but before that, you know, I'd read like um, The Watchmen and, uh, you know, Alan Moore's comics and Dark Knight Returns and, and Mouse. But I was more of an indie comic guy, like mm-hmm. probably my favorite writer in comics is Dan Klaus. So I read a ton of his stuff. And um, and, yeah, I would read sort of comic book adaptations of biographies or, or histories. So that was really more what I read in comics was uh, was sort of indie nonfiction stuff. I wasn't really that familiar with the canon. I certainly had never really read the big two mm-hmm. uh, before that, but I read a lot of it now just because I, I have to as a professional necessity. Sure. And surprisingly, a lot of it is pretty good. <laughs> uh, um, you know, uh, uh, one character that has you know, a lot of history that you're working with now is Judge Dredd uh, over at IDW, uh, you know, which has been, you know, gone back years as sort of a farm system for, you know, British writers, you know, from Garth Ennis to to Cy Spurrier. Um, How do you, you know, in a lot of ways, Dredd is sort of this, this odd British fascist, you know, power, power fantasy coming from a nation where their police don't carry uh, weapons. Um, you know, how do you approach this character as an, as an American, uh, as an American writer? Well, I think in a lot of ways, uh, Judge Dredd was written as their sort of impression uh, of America, mm-hmm. uh, as their satire of America. You know, I, when I was, uh, you know, a young man, I went to Tijuana once and I remember thinking, oh, is this Mexico? Uh, boy, this place is terrible. And then it occurred to me that, that, Tijuana is not really Mexico. It's it's what Mexicans think Americans want. You know, they, they think that we're the ones who want, you know, sort of like cheap prescription drugs and uh, donkeys painted up like zebras and, you know, um, all, all the, the this cheap tacky stuff you get in Tijuana has nothing to do with Mexico. It's a reflection of what they think we want to buy. And they're right, obviously, because it's just me and a bunch of Americans. They're buying this stuff. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think Dread is sort of like the British Tijuana. Hmm. It's it's like they set this up as a world to sort of like this is what Americans are, are, are will are want to buy, and this is what Americans are, are you know this is where they're headed. Uh, so I tried to like write it differently as an American writer, and that I wanted to like sort of point out that while the dangers of fascism and authoritarianism are certainly there, and their their fears are well placed. Uh, there's a lot of heroism in the everyday people uh, that live here, too. So I wanted to write a series where Judge Dredd is kind of bailed out by the heroism of the people he normally would just be uh, arresting and throwing in the ISO cubes, the, the residents of this uh, forgotten city block called the Patrick Swayze block, who he needs to have join him to help defend off this invasion by the mutants. Uh, is is Patrick Swayze Block uh, your naming? Yeah, yeah. I came up, with, you know, and I, originally I wanted to do this sort of like joke where, um, you know, the guy who's like leading the the crime gang who controls Patrick Swayze Block is trying to encourage everyone to rise up against the mutants, and I wanted him to give this speech where he says, you know, the Patrick Swayze Block. I don't know much about history, but the Patrick Swayze Block was named for a, a wise and ancient warrior 
from the 20th century. And, and, you know, we should fight and make him proud. And, and then I wanted people to be coming around the corner with like guns or knives screaming, Patrick Swayze. (laughs) But it, it just turned out being too goofy at a moment where I needed to, where it was really kind of serious and people were getting killed characters. You, you know, you kind of get to know or getting shot and, and, and so I thought oh, it's just too goofy for the the mood that I've created. So I, I cut that scene out. But originally that was my idea. But I still kind of like the fact that it was called something sort of goofy and offhand, like the Patrick Swayze block. It makes no sense whatsoever. I, I do kind of look forward to future writers expanding on that and creating a, a you know an, an almost Planet Hollywood esque like neighborhood of you know like Stallone Boulevard and uh, Schwarzenegger Terrace or whatever. Um, but uh, uh, moving on, uh, another uh, publisher that you're involved with is Ahoy uh, coming up uh, this fall. Uh, kind of one of the interesting things about that is as soon as Ahoy got announced, you saw this kind of glut of, or not not a glut, but like a couple of these kind of think pieces where all of a sudden we're talking about there being, uh, you know, too many middle brow publishers and sort of imprints and lines. Uh, is that is that... A ba- is that kind of a bad faith argument to your to your mind? You know, do you feel like you know we need sort of more of of you know what you guys are selling? Yeah, I think there is sort of like this this um, this gap in uh, comics where you don't see a lot of like just sort of like funny uh, but like satirical comics. It's it's really hard to like sell a satirical comic. I think it's because largely because the the publishers are people in their mind are kind of categorizing comics. Well, is this grim dark or is this you know you know more like Marvel? And it, it, if they can't easily categorize it based upon the comics they're used to buying, they don't really know how to market it. They don't really know how to sell it, and buyers don't really know what to think of it. So I think it's good that there's a um, a comic book company that's devoted specifically to that flavor of of comic. Because then people begin to identify, well, if I like this sort of flavor of comic, if I like this type of comic, I, I know there's a publisher there I could trust to introduce me to new titles. And they described it to me when we were initially talking as a sort of funny vertigo. And, and they pretty much had me at that moment. It's like, oh, that sounds perfect. So um, I'm, t- I'm talks to do a series with them. Um, but uh, r- right now I've got... Uh, um, a uh, uh, just a short that's coming out in their Hollywood their their Halloween issue uh, of Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Terror. Yeah, and I did a short comic book uh, which is basically uh, uh, Count Chocula Vampire Revenge Story. Now, is this uh, you, but, you've mentioned in the past writing Count Chocula fan fiction? Is this is this a a, a, ta- a revisiting of that? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of based on one of those things, uh, one of those Count Chocula stories I'd written on, on Facebook that actually got me the, the gig writing Prez for DC. Um, but it, it's expanded on it, and it, they wouldn't let me, I couldn't use Count Chocula, obviously, for legal reasons. <laughs> so in this story, I, I call him the Marquis de Coco. That's fantastic. Um, you mentioned, obviously, you're, you're, you're reading a lot more comics now working in the industry um are there certain series that you you are reading on the regular 
Yeah, I uh, am reading uh, obviously Saga, like everyone else on the planet. Sure. Which uh, is still still great, and uh, I don't know if you read the latest issue, but it um, it, it has a pretty shocking ending. So I won't, I won't, I won't uh, spoil or anything, but yeah, it's still really good. I'm really enjoying that. Uh, I read pretty much every Walking Dead since the beginning, although I think I'm one volume behind now. Uh, again, terrific comic. And the thing I like about it is not so much the zombies. Uh, I mean, the zombies are okay, but what I really like about Walking Dead mm-hmm. is it kind of asks the question, like, what if we had to start over from scratch? What, what if we had to rebuild the world? What kind of, what, what mistakes would we make again? What, what things would we keep and what things would have to go? And for me, it's, I love this sort of combination of like high concept with just sort of like watching people get shot in the eyeball. That's, <laughs> That sort of thing. It's a really good formula. You know, kind of going back, uh, you know, we mentioned, you know, you were more of a casual comics fan. What kind of media, you know, were you consuming growing up? You know, I, I was, oh man, I, I was a pretty big nerd. Uh, I started reading uh, World Book Encyclopedias. Uh, that was kind of my gateway to the world. It's like I had this set of World Book Encyclopedias. So I would read those. And I also read a lot of like I, we had I lived in a college town, um, Eugene, Oregon. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of really fantastic um, used bookstores. So I, at the age of 12, I would just ride my bike to like these used bookstores or to like a Goodwill. And in most towns, you go to a, a used paperback bookstore or a Goodwill. And it's all it's like 90 percent Harlequin romance novels or, um, you know, things like things about centaur battles uh but i could go into like a yeah i mean that's a big that's a big big underrated genre in literature centaur battles but uh i could go into like a a goodwill or uh you know some store in eugene and and get copies of like uh raid bradbury's martian chronicles or uh, another hugely influential paperback book on me when I was young was uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, or mm-hmm. I read, um, you know, Aldous Huxley or uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. But I just, you know, basically I would just, the thing I liked about these stories, I'd go there and there's some guy, I would find the guy who looked like you would probably be me in 10 years uh, or the woman. And mm-hmm. I would just say, well, what's what's good? Because I didn't know anything about science fiction or you know about literature really, and I would probably just buy what they what they recommended me because it was like a, a quarter a book or a dime a book or something. And I just come home with a sack of paperback novels, and I would just read them one after another. So I read Lord of the Flies, I read you know um, uh, Chrome Yellow and um, Clockwork Orange. I, you know, I was like twelve years old and I was reading these books. So to me, that was always sort of my my pop culture these sort of people writing these novels about about the future and about the world as they saw it. And that's always kind of what I aspire to be as a writer. I am also guilty of a childhood in which I just sat and read the encyclopedia, by the way. I just want to throw that in there. There's, yeah, there's, there's probably a lot more of us. <laughs> because, yeah. Uh, yeah, we started a, like a support group. Uh, but but yeah, I, I would just open up randomly to and like find passages that were usually kind of fascinating because you know so little about the outside world other than what they choose to spoon feed you in school, the the stuff that, that is useful to teach you at that point in time. But it felt like a like kind of an act of rebellion to to open the encyclopedia. It's like, well, I'm going to learn, 
I'm, you know, I'm, I'm off the rails. I'm, I'm going to learn something about you, something you had no intention of ever teaching me. You know, I'm going to read, I'm going to sit here for five minutes and just read about the country of Algeria. Yep. It's, it's, it's time to get the truth about salamanders and, uh, sailing <laughs> the given day. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm very knowledgeable on the, uh, the R to ST things of the world, you know? Um, so you've lived in Oregon pretty much your whole life then. Yeah. Um, how, how is kind of, you know, I think about Portland and it amazes me how many comics creators have sort of migrated there in the past few years. And obviously, uh, image, uh, as well. How has, you know, how has kind of the culture there, uh, changed for you as somebody who's kind of lived there and, and seen it? Yeah, it's bizarre because, you know, I, I've lived here for 25 years and I didn't get into I didn't become a comic book writer until 2015. It was only then I started finding out like, oh, yeah, there's all these comic book writers uh, here. You can't you can't spit a rat uh, without without hitting one. And, um, yeah, it's kind of bizarre. I think it par- part of the reason why so many are here is because the, the weather's pretty bad. So. <laughs> So it, that accomplishes two things: it keeps the property values down, and it, uh, it 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 makes it a lot easier to write because you're not always looking out the window. Um, the summers are gorgeous, but then the other nine months it's it's overcast and rainy, which is for me is fine. This is what I grew up in. You know, this is my natural habitat. I, I love overcast and rainy, um, but I I think that in a lot of ways you could probably gauge how good the writing is in a given place by how poor the weather is. So it's, it's, it's you guys in London. <laughs> yeah, I know in like Ireland, tons of really fantastic novelists and playwrights come out of Ireland. Cause mm-hmm. what, uh, who wants to go outside? <laughs> um, Mark, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, uh, what are the, be- uh, what's the best way for people to follow you online? If you in fact wish to be followed. I do. I please follow uh, the point of stocking. Um, I'm at probably the best way is on Twitter because uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, and I'm at Manris at, at ampersand, you know, um, or at the at symbol, whatever that's called. Uh, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I just want to make sure. Let's see. We've mentioned Snifter of Terror. We've mentioned uh, Lone Ranger. Uh Huck and uh, yes, can I, can I give a yeah a plug real quick, please? Uh, the, the 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 Snagglepuss trade paperback, which I'm really proud of, which they actually allowed me to add a, a historical glossary onto, so I can talk about all the historical events that were in Snagglepuss. The trade paperback, where you can read all the issues of Snagglepuss without the Twix ads and everything, uh, comes out on August 28th, and um. I'm really trying to to promote that because I think it's the best way to read the stories in the trade paperback format. Uh, that was a fantastic series, and I probably will be rebuying that in trade. Uh, one word about the Twix ads: they're not as jarring in Snacklepuss as they are in Superman, who then appears in the Twix page, uh, you know, in the Twix ad on the very next page. Yeah, no, they they should just work it into a product placement. Like during the course of the story, he just like stops and eats a Twix. Or maybe, you know, at one point, like, uh, Brainiac poisons him with a kryptonite Twix or something. Uh, yeah, that would be that would be more tastefully seamless than just having him go into an ad. 
here you go. You're not yourself when you're on when you're on Black Kryptonite. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mark, thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Dan. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. W-M-Q-A. W-M-Q-A.